Welcome to Mid-Century Living, your weekly podcast about everything mid-century and how to bring the mid-century vibe to your everyday life. Welcome to Mid-Century Living, the show where we talk all about the mid-century then and now. I'm Gonzalo, and with me today, as always, is the lovely Jackie. Today, we're going to talk about something really cool. I know that Jackie is fangirling a little, so I want to stop talking and let her get us started. But before we get on, uh, if you're enjoying hearing about the mid-century, please subscribe, drop us a like, and a review on whichever platform you are listening to us on. It really helps us. So what's new, Jackie? Anything mid-century-ish happened to you this week? Nothing mid-century-ish happened to me this week any more than usual. Um, basically, right now, I have, I've just turned into a pumpkin, pretty much. So I've bought all of the pumpkin groceries that I might want to try, because I feel like with seasonal products, you really need to, if you're on the fence, you need to just buy it, because if you wait a week and go back to the store afterwards, it's going to be gone. So I bought a bunch of pumpkin snacks, and I bought a bunch of pumpkin decorations, and no actual pumpkins, but um, I did buy pumpkin puree. But basically, that's what's happened to me this week is I've just turned into a pumpkin. <laughs> I actually asked my the manager at my grocery store when they stopped selling pumpkins. Because last year, I was going to make a pumpkin pie. And I like doing things from scratch. So last time, I, two years ago, when I made a pumpkin pie, I bought a pumpkin. And last year, I was like, oh, cool, I'll do it again. But when I went on the 1st of November to buy my pumpkin, they were already done selling them. That is a huge pet peeve of mine, actually, because I feel like Thanksgiving is a very gourd-centric holiday. And it really mm -hmm. bothers me that they phase out pumpkin in November. Yeah. Uh, because then what do you do at Thanksgiving? You're stuck with the canned stuff? Yeah. Well, actually, I ended up not making a pumpkin pie at all. I just made pecan and I made cranberry. The good thing about winter squash, though, is they keep for a while, so you could buy one now and keep it in the cupboard. Yeah, but I figured I was going to wait until the last week of October, mm. so that is fresher. Right. Listeners, I did air quotes. No one can see those, but... Do you notice, I guess we'll get to the real truth here on the pod, but an actual quality difference between roasted pie pumpkin puree once it's been made into a pie and the Libby's stuff? Or do you just no. like doing it because it makes you feel one with your ancestors? <laughs> <laughs> well, my ancestors did not make pumpkin pie. Um, <laughs> or, you know, like but I, like our forefathers and mothers before us who roasted their pumpkins to make puree. <laughs> 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 I just like doing things from scratch uh, when I whenever I cook. So, I don't know. <laughs> my ancestors would be like, what is this? Actually, it would be like, ¿qué es esto? <laughs> I love shortcuts in the kitchen, <laughs> which is probably why I lean into the 50s so much. But I genuinely think that the pumpkin puree, the not not the pumpkin pie filling in a can, that stuff is gross, but the actual just pureed pumpkin tastes good and is a lot less effort. Also, I don't know if you've ever tried to peel and cube a butternut squash on your own, but that is not worth it. So we make this dessert at home that I always ask for because it's my favorite and it's it's super hard and I feel really bad because last year I, I helped absolutely nothing. But it's candied pumpkin and it involves 
uh, curing cubed pumpkin pieces in ash and then cooking them with a lot of sugar. <clears throat> and I love it, but it's super hard to make. And I didn't help last year, but I ate it all. <laughs> <laughs> so fun tip for the kitchen, I guess. If you, now that it's Halloween, well, now that Halloween stuff is in stores, I should say. <laughs> for normal people, it's not Halloween yet. Just they can go buy Halloween stuff. The little saws in the pumpkin carving kits are just handy to have around in the kitchen for cutting winter squash because like spaghetti squash and butternut squash and all that stuff, unless you have really, really sharp knives. Um, like part of the trick of making spaghetti squash is not cutting your hand off when you try to cut it in half. Raw. Ideally. Yeah. Um, it's That's like if you can cut your spaghetti squash in half without cutting your hand off, then you are rewarded with a pasta substitute and then otherwise you're rewarded with a trip to the ER. Anyway, I don't... This is niche content for people who have tried to cut a winter squash. Anyway, the little saws and the pumpkin carving kits, you can just keep them year-round and cut into all your winter squash with them, and it's adorable. And mm -hmm. that's what it's built for, so it actually is super helpful, I think. I was helping my sister build furniture last weekend, and I don't know how I got to this, but I needed I needed to cut the drywall, and I go, hey, can you go get me your drywall saw? And she's like, what? <laughs> She's like, I got a screwdriver. That's it. <laughs> Which if she would hear this, she would say that um, she has a lot of tools because she's always like, I've got tools. She's got like a little like set of like uh, pink handled tools. I was just going to ask if they were pink. <laughs> <laughs> I think my dad got them for her when she got her first place after like leaving the nest when she was whatever age people do that at. But anyway. Uh I had a very interesting week because my car, which is not old, I've never had a, I was gonna say, I've never had a brand new car, but I, this one, it's about two years old. And it's been so hot in Texas that my battery died. Huh. Just and from heat exhaustion? It must be because the guy, like, okay, so it died, it, it died and I had to have it jumped. Uh, shout out to uh, our instructional coach. <laughs> at school because uh, I texted our group uh, of teachers that I, that I usually am with and they had all left except for one. So thank you for jumping and start my car. But anyway, I took it to the AutoZone afterwards and the guy's like, no, it's charging fine. You probably just left your lights on. And I'm like looking around, I was like, no, everything in the car is automatic. Like I didn't leave anything on. But it started and then I went home and it started fine and I drove around a couple of days. I drove to the airport, I drove back, everything's working great. And then it died again. Aww. Took it back to AutoZone. And they're like, well, we can't charge it. Uh, so we can't test it because the battery is not charged. And I go, duh, that's why I'm here. <laughs> um, and the guy goes, yeah, just drive it home and bring back the battery. You have a second car, right? And I'm like, no, I, I don't have a second car. This is my one car that I am allotted for my paycheck. <laughs> so anyway, I... I Drove home and it started again and I was fine. And then it died a third time and I took it to the dealership because it was under warranty. And, and they replaced both the batteries for free, which is great because it was going to run me a lot of money. Huh. Yeah, batteries aren't cheap. I just had to replace mine recently. I, that is fascinating that he just assumes you have a second car. Like, why would you yeah. be driving to him in the one car if you had another car to use? The only thing I can think of is he's like, oh, okay, so you're... 
not young person. So like you probably have someone at your house that can drive you back with the battery. But that's not what he said. He didn't say your wife can drive you back to here. He said you have a second car, right? Yeah, that's exactly how he phrased it too, which I thought was weird. Interesting. Which, funnily enough, if this had been a year ago and I had my roommate living here, I would have had a second car because he had two cars. And I knew where the keys to the car that he didn't drive were. Oh, good. <laughs> Sorry if you're listening. <laughs> anyway, uh, so that's my week. But now how about we uh, stop talking about today and uh, start talking about uh, the mid-20th century. Uh, Jackie, what's our topic this week? Our topic this week is Disneyland and also... Because it's so interesting, and I have so many notes to cover, uh, we're actually going to make this a two-part episode. So this week, we will be discussing Disneyland Part 1, which will be mainly um, the inspiration and and pre-production, I guess, of the Disneyland Park. And then next week, we will cover building the park and opening the park and the park today. So buckle up. I've got a lot and to listeners, cover. <laughs> and we're talking about Disneyland in California. Disneyland in California, which is the one park that Walt Disney himself, it was the park that started it all and the one that he had the most hands-on experience with. We'll be covering um, basically the, the inspiration of Disneyland Park through to Walt Disney's death in 1966 so all of that is within our mid-century time period year coverage we got to come up with a catchy <laughs> name I, I like that. i like mid 20th century year coverage year coverage colon our podcast <laughs> and listeners if you're not sure what we're talking about if you're just joining us uh go ahead and go back in our archives and listen to what is the mid century yes though i suppose technically in that episode we just decided we'd stop talking about the mid-century in 1965 but i think 1966 was within the margin of error yeah plus or minus plus or minus really i think the the phrase i used was as far into the 60s as we can get before it starts looking like the 70s so i think 1966 is within that range yeah um anyway so here we go. We will start with inspiration. So Walt Disney, the man, was born in 1901, and his boyhood home in Missouri had this bustling main street that he loved and that later provided the inspiration for Disneyland's Main Street USA. He, growing up, was always looking for ideas and inspiration from everything around him, and when he... um took his daughters to ride the carousel in the Griffith Park in L.A. He started imagining what a clean and safe and family-friendly place where parents and children could have fun together could be like. Um, amusement parks back then were not what am, were not really quite up to the standards of amusement parks we're used to today. So he had this idea of it being just like a safe place for everyone, but also fun for the adults and the kids. Usually, back then, adults were just sitting at the park, like watching their kids hang out and do things, but he wanted something that was going to be fun for everybody. He looked for ideas and inspiration from other places around LA, like Knott's Berry Farm and um, 
the Spanish colonial style shops on Olvera Street and the farmer's market, which is one of his favorite hangouts, um, and started kind of piecing together the idea of this Mickey Mouse Park. I like the, you, you called it Mickey Mouse Park, which is funny because, well, not funny, but it's interesting because the first documented plan for the park is in a little memo from Walt to the production designer Dick Kelsey, where he referred to it as Mickey Mouse Park. Yes, I think that was actually what he technically was thinking of calling it at the time. Um, starting around 1950 is when he started shopping this idea around, and he started touring around other different theme parks. Um, two in particular that inspired him greatly were the Tivoli Gardens in Denmark and Children's Fairyland in Oakland, California. Um, the Tivoli Gardens Park opened in 1843 and is the third oldest operating amusement park in the world. Wait, today? Yes, it's still open. Oh, wow. And it's the second most popular seasonal amusement park in the world um, and also the fifth most visited amusement park in Europe. Wow. Children's Fairyland was built in 1950 in Oakland, California. And Disney actually hired the first director of Fairyland to work at Disneyland as a youth director. And she actually worked there from the park's opening until 1972. So this was sort of Walt's style as he would kind of recruit people that he thought were brilliant to work on his projects. And that's sort of how Wed Enterprises came to be. So he handpicked a group of studio staff and other artists from... um, both his other companies and from Walt Disney Studios and from other places around. Um, he referred to them as Imagineers, which combined the word imagination and engineering. Oh, Imagineers, like today, because we call that still, they're still called Imagineers. Yes, they are still called Imagineers. You'll notice as I go through this history that um, a lot of these terms that Walt coined, they still use today. Um, some things have been reworded. You could actually tell a true Disney fan based on the vocabulary they use. Um, Like if you know what Wed Enterprises is, for example, because it's not a thing anymore. I did not know what it was. When you said it earlier, when we were going over the outline, I was like, Wed, like, I don't know. In my mind, it was like Wed, like Wed, like married. No, it's actually Walt Disney's initials. Um, Walter Elias Disney is what Wed Enterprises stands for. But it was originally formed as Walt Disney Inc. with an engineering division tasked specifically with designing Disneyland. Um, The idea was having everyone who was working on Disneyland under one organization to make it easier for them to collaborate each other. Um, He renamed WDI to Wed Enterprises in 1953, which was, again, his initials. Um, This company was owned privately by Walt from its beginnings in 1952 through to 1965 when it eventually merged with the Walt Disney Company. Um, so it was mainly, it was supposed to function as a separate organization from the rest of the company, but as Imagineers were repeatedly recruited to create sets for live action movies, the two parts, the two companies sort of became closer together until eventually it just made more sense financially to merge them. So it's actually just part of the Walt Disney company now. And that's why Wet Enterprises is no longer a company title. So you can tell who the real fans are if they know what it is. Ah, interesting. So originally we were going to have wed enterprises just for the park, so two separate things. Yep. Okay. Um. So once he has this group of geniuses together working on this theme park, then it 
it comes time to raise money. So since it was this crazy idea at the time, he had a little difficulty obtaining funding. So Walt had to think outside the box and decided to use television to get the idea into people's home. Um, so at this point, it was a new medium he was taking a risk on, but he considered it his way of going direct to the public, quote unquote, and created a TV show called Disneyland, which aired on ABC. And in return, ABC Television Network agreed to help finance the new park. So that's where he got a lot of his money from. So the Disneyland TV show premiered on October 27th, 1954, and contained weekly glimpses of Disneyland Park being built, um, and occasionally other Disney shorts and stuff like that. So has ABC always owned Disney? Because I know that, oh, maybe I'm wrong, but don't they own Disneyland now? Um, they are actually, I think Disney owns ABC now, but they've oh, been the working together this long. Yes. Wow. Yeah. They've always been partners. So what was the show about, do you know? Yes. So it was usually, uh, they would open with a clip of Disneyland being built and like progress reports and then end with Disney shorts or Mickey Mouse cartoons or clips from movies or whole movies in black and white originally, and then eventually in color. Basically, the same show still runs today. It's appeared on different titles. Currently, the version of the show is The Wonderful World of Disney, which is the current incarnation of the series. Um, another well, place that he procured funding from was, um, well, he needed a railroad. Walt always loved railroads and trains. That was always a huge passion of his. So he got a sponsorship deal so that Disneyland could have a railroad. It was a company called the Addition Topeka and Santa Fe Railway, ATNSF. Um, and so the Disneyland Railroad was originally called the Santa Fe and Disneyland Railroad um, until the sponsorship deal ended in 1974. So now they have the money, so it's time to work on designing the theme park. So Walt's genius is shown a lot of the things that now seem normal to us in theme park designs were not normal at all. And Disney himself just kind of came up with all of these ideas on his own. So some unique design ideas that were Walt's idea and you can see in all of the Disney parks and some other theme parks that sort of copied him later, are the concept of a single entrance. So Walt studied pathways, traffic flow, and entrances and exits at places like fairs, circuses, carnivals, national parks, museums, and even streets in New York City, trying to decide what the most efficient way and the best way to move people through a crowded place like this would be. Um, and he came up with this idea of a single entrance Amusement park operators at the time argued this would create congestion, but Walt wanted visitors to experience a cohesive story, like walking through scenes of a movie. Another unique idea of his was the concept of a central hub. So there would be something in the middle that would lead out to the park's four lands, like spokes of a wheel. Uh, Walt felt that this oriented people and saved steps. Interesting. Like saving people walking back and forth. Because that's the worst, like, when you're like, oh, I have to go somewhere, and then you walk, and then you realize halfway there, they're like, oh, I'm going the wrong way. Yes. So... I did that this week. <laughs> I got off the uh, the elevator, I was running an errand, and I got off the elevator the wrong floor, and then I had to, like, embarrassingly go back into the elevator, push the right button. 
You do do an awful lot of walking in Disney parks, but it is a lot easier to find your way around because you can always look to the center of the park and figure out where you are in relation to everything else. Another unique design idea of Walt, which is that every land should have a weenie, is what he called it, an eye-catching central feature that draws people toward a goal. So the main attractor was, of course, Sleeping Beauty Castle, but each individual land also has something drawing you in um, to the center. And individual lands gets us to one last unique design idea of Walt, which was theming. So Walt insisted that elements in each land fit harmoniously together from buildings to signs to trash cans. Um, Everything has to establish a cohesive story for each land. Uh, Disney trash cans are also fan favorites. They even make little like trash can Christmas ornaments now you can buy because each individual land, all of the the trash cans are themed. The ground is themed. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but um, the storytelling I think is my favorite part of all of the theming because it's not just like you're waiting in line some random place and then you get on the ride and that's when the story starts it at Disney parks. The story starts when you step into the line so even yes. the part where you're waiting in line is themed and it's that's where the story starts and there's um I wish I could think of some original but the the best one that comes to mind uh for telling a story while you're waiting in line is the Tower of Terror. I was just thinking the Tower of Terror because in Disney World whenever you're going through it you're going through the hotel and mm-hmm. if you've seen the movie it looks just like the set. Yes, and it's like the little details are incredible. I love. I'm too. I'm too, much too much of a baby to go on this actual ride. I've gone on it a couple times, and I love it to pieces. I just genuinely cannot handle the the free falling sensation. So I always take the chicken exit, um, and I go get a frozen banana while everyone else rides the ride. But I sometimes, <laughs> if the line is short, I'll just wait in line with everybody because I just enjoy the theming so much. So yeah, it's a hotel, but it's an abandoned hotel. And so, like, there's a phone off the hook on the front desk, and there's cobwebs everywhere. You could see, like, someone knocked over a wine glass on their way out. Um, like, it, it looks like a hotel that people left in a hurry a long yeah. time ago. Like, the entire thing is beautiful. And it's this beautiful Art Deco hotel that I would have just loved to stay in. <laughs> but that's the thing. It's, like, also a really nice hotel. But it's a really nice hotel that's clearly not been taken care of in years. And it's a whole, you get the entire vibe. And you're starting to feel nervous, like something has gone wrong here before you even get to the elevator. The whole thing's incredible. Anyway, that's my favorite telling the story ride cue. Okay. And you're never bored. There's always something to look at in all of these. So the entire thing, if you're waiting in line forever, it's you're still in the experience. Yeah. I think that's exactly what he was going for. It's mm-hmm. a, a an experience, not just a theme park. Correct. And that's what makes the so. Disney parks so landmark and interesting. And that's why we're devoting two episodes to it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, let's talk a little bit about the layout. Um, because like Jackie said, it's layout that can be seen in all of his other parks and also in some parks that um, draw their inspiration from Disney. And per design, it's not meant to be a series of attractions just kind of hobbled together. It's meant to be an aesthetically engineered setting, very careful details, 
goal of a very rich atmosphere, scenes everywhere, so you're always in like a story. And a lot of the original attractions are still there today, and we'll get more on that uh, in part two. Um, but there's very good descriptions of his original, of Walt's original ideas. And there's actually a map rendering uh, from about 1953. And this rendering came from a weekend that Walt and um, one of his uh, head designers by the name of Herb Ryman did. So Walt wanted to get this idea out. And he's like, you're the only one who can do this. And what Herb did was draw as Walt talked. Um, and the map that came out of this talk um, is the original map and rendering of Disneyland. And it actually sold at an auction in 2017. I'm not really sure what the final price was, but pre-auction estimate had it at between $750,000 and $1 million. So that should be some sort of a indication of how important Disneyland is. Mm -hmm. And that central hub idea that uh, Jackie mentioned with the four lands with the spokes of the wheel. If you look at it from plan view and you're looking at it kind of like a compass for the four cardinal directions, you have at the south, at the bottom, you have the entrance. And then to the east, you have, which is the right, uh, you have Tomorrowland. And then at the top, Fantasyland, which you go through the castle for, and Frontierland to the left. And we also see some stuff to the left um, in Adventureland, New Orleans Square, and Critter Country. And all these names are very close to what he wanted originally. Uh, Fantasyland's original, but Frontierland actually was Frontier Country. Uh, Tomorrowland was the world of tomorrow. Um, Adventureland was True Life Adventureland. Um, and New Orleans Square, which is very well-known part of Disneyland, actually not originally in his plans. Um, the area where that it's at was actually supposed to be made up of Mickey Mouse Club and Lilliputian Island, which I think I'm saying that correctly. Uh, but that is actually... Uh, kind of like a callback to the book Gulliver's Travels, where he goes to the island Lilliput, where everyone is tiny. So we can assume that original plans had him building part of a park in miniatures that guests felt like giants. <laughs> that would have been cute. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, the entrance is very much built like his original plan. Um, you know, Walt loved his trains so the entrance is a train station and you see two little small i don't not tunnels really like underpasses leading into main street uh, the iconic disney flower bed with the mickey mouse on it was not originally there uh, but i think it's a great addition because if you think of disneyland in my mind at least i think the flower bed at the area entrance mm -hmm. Uh, the original castle was meant to curve around the courtyard with a carousel at its center, uh, but the actual castle ended up being styled after Sleeping Beauty, and there's a drawbridge slash tunnel at its center that you go through, and if you're standing at the center of the spoke, you can kind of still see a carousel, because instead of the carousel being part of the castle, it's a centerpiece at Fantasyland, which is just beyond the castle. Um, so some pieces of the map 
remain unchanged uh, when they were built. Uh, for example, the placement of Frontierland River, Mark Twain's riverboat uh, are just as described in the map, which actually the riverboat uh, is pretty cool. Um, I don't remember, but it's the first that it's built in so many years. Actually, 50. It's an actual functioning riverboat and the first one built in the United States in 50 years at the time it was built. It's oh, built wow. to 5 8 scale, but it is fully functioning. That's actually pretty cool. It's um, very cool. The <laughs> That's the thing is the attention to detail these Imagineers put in. It's incredible. Also, the um, they really wanted, and we'll get into this a little bit more when we get to the section on building the park, but they were going for authenticity in all of this. So they didn't just build a boat that looked like a riverboat. They built a fully functioning riverboat. The drawbridge in the castle is an actual functioning drawbridge. They studied the way, what? They, the way that they built drawbridges in medieval times and they just built it again. It is a fully functioning drawbridge. <laughs> the thatched roofs in Adventureland, they went and learned how to build thatched roofs and they built them the old fashioned way. Like they, it's incredible the amount of detail they put into the same park. And they um, all did it by hand too. It's incredible. That's cool. So yeah, so there's some attractions that are still there. Uh, the riverboats and Sawyer Island are still major attractions today. Some things, however, in the in that drawing are do not exist. Uh, it looks from the drawing like originally there was supposed to be a hot air balloon uh, tethered to the center of the park that you could go up in. Uh, that does not exist. Um, there also seems to be a little church in the map as well. Um, and a lot of buildings that are built, including the castle, are built in a forced perspective uh, view, which means that they look huge, and they are, but they look huge because as you build up, you make it smaller and smaller and smaller. And that makes it look taller because the smaller things are farther away. Mm -hmm. So... Um, the Sleeping Beauty's Castle, at least in Disney World in Florida, um, the top of the towers are not big at all. They just look life-size, but they're actually not big enough. To, like, the balconies are not big enough to stand in. Yeah. Well, um, we've covered a lot. So how about we, we take a quick break here, and uh, we'll talk about building the park, in our next episode and everything else there. Yeah, that sounds like a good place to break. Um, though, since it is the end of an episode, we can't just close without an etiquette tip. But since we're really just ending part one, um, instead of going full etiquette tip, I have an etiquette fun fact. Okay, let's hear it. So you cannot buy chewing gum in any Disney parks because Walt didn't want people stepping on chewing gum while walking around the theme parks because he wanted it to be a clean environment. He just made it a rule that they're not going to sell. It's not like they make you throw it out if you come into the park or anything, but they will not sell it. They never did back then, and they still, to this day, do not sell chewing gum in Disney parks. Hmm. I support that. I'm not a big gum chewer. It was We weren't really encouraged. I don't want to say allowed because I don't think it was ever like against the rules. But we weren't encouraged to chew gum as little kids. But anyway, so not a full etiquette tip, but an etiquette-related fun fact, which I always thought was really interesting. 
And I also support it because, yeah, because in addition to it just being on the ground to step in, people would just put it under all of the tables, probably like under the park benches. Like, can you imagine? I moved the desk in my classroom the other day and I accidentally touched gum and it was was like, ah, no, bleh. So anyway, (laughs) but I think that's a good place to end part one and we will resume part two next week. Sounds good. So listeners, uh, thank you guys for tuning in to part one of our Disneyland uh, episode. And uh, we'll see you guys next week with part two. Thank you for listening to Mid-Century Living. Please subscribe, tell your friends, and leave a review. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at MCL Podcast. See you next Friday.